Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Daniel Karapkin speaking to you uh, from the Facebook Live page of webyeshiva.org. Um, we are broadcasting live from Thornhill, Ontario, in Canada, and we are studying Moren Vuchim. We are we do this uh, on most Mondays uh, at 7:30 Eastern Standard Time uh, from the Bayit, the big shul in Thornhill, and um, we are now up to chapter 49 in Moren Vuchim. We are using the Shlomo Pines edition, so that puts us on page 108. And we usually try to have a handout for you. You can find the handout if you open up a new tab in the Facebook uh, Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim. And today's chapter is of chapter 49 of the first section, and the topic is, What are Angels? So just to put us in our proper context, we have spent um, the last 48 chapters, to some degree or another, discussing God, and specifically, discussing God as it pertains to corporeality. Does God have a physical form or does he not have a physical form? Is God capable of assuming a physical form? And of course, the, uh, the Rambam has spent a very large amount of the Sefer negating that possibility. Chapter 49 is the last chapter where the Rambam is going to be dealing with specifically the subject of corporeality or physicality. But in this chapter, he is departing from his discussion of God and discussing a creation of God called angels, Malachim. And in this discussion, he's going to discuss the possibility of corporeality of angels. Um, it's interesting, Rav Tolidano says that this is the 49th chapter because sometimes you have to go through 49 uh, levels of Bina, of wisdom. There are typically memtet sha'arei bina or sha'arei chokhma, 49 gates of wisdom that you have to go through before you can finally say that I've properly um, uh, success, successfully approached the subject and I've properly grasped the subject. So this is the 49th chapter. And so the Rambam wants to finish his discussion of corporeality to discuss malachim. And we are not going to give a comprehensive discussion today about what angels are and what they're not. We're going to discover that for the Rambam, this is a very intricate topic. It's a very um, complicated topic, the topic of angels. And it's quite interesting that the Rambam spends so much time of it uh, on it. We might even speculate that because he lived in an Islamic country, where so, so much of the fundamentals of Islam surround angelology that the Rambam felt he needed to discuss more time on this than perhaps we find Chazal and other commentaries spending on this subject. But nonetheless, 
the Rambam takes the philosophical intellectual approach to angels, that they are intellectual uh, entities that are pure, made up of pure intellect. And as such, they are totally incorporeal. And they, uh, so we, this is really our first foray into a discussion of angels. The angels are not endowed with bodies, but are intellects separate from matter, using the Aristotel Aristotelian dichotomy of form and matter. So angels have no matter whatsoever. They are pure form, and furthermore, they are pure intellect. However, they are the objects of an act, and God has created them, as will be explained. What he means by that is that they are acted upon, which means God gives them instructions, and God, they do God's bidding, and they are created entities. And we will explain more of this, and this is going to be in section 2, at the beginning of section 2 of the Moren of Uchim. Now, here the Rambam launches into his discussion specifically of the non-corporeal nature of angels using a midrash in Bereshit Rabbah, and we'll read it in Hebrew, Ve'et Lahat. The midrash is going on the uh, aftermath of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They are ejected from the garden, and God sets up a spinning, flaming sword at the entrance to the garden to prevent man from ever being able to go back into the garden. The Medrash says that this lahat, this flame that God set up of a flaming sword, really is representative of some angelic entity that is standing guard at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Of Eden. As it says, al-shem u-musharatav eshlohet, based uh, on the facts as the Midrash, that God's servants are a fiery fire, are a burning fire. Hamitapechet, that it was spinning. Shehem mitapchim pe'amim anashim, pe'amim nashim, pe'amim ruchot, pe'amim malachim. That these entities that God creates, sometimes they are, they are constantly, when it says spinning, it means that they're rotating or changing. And that what it means that they change is that they assume different forms. Sometimes they assume the form of men. Sometimes they assume the form of women. Sometimes they assume the form of spirits, completely disembodied in other words. And sometimes they assume the form of angels, which means that not only do they look human, but they look angelic in the sense that they have wings as well. That's the Midrash. But the Rambam feels that through this medrash, they have made it clear that angels are not endowed with matter, and that outside the mind, they have no fixed corporeal shape, but that all such shapes are only to be perceived in the vision of prophecy in consequence of the action of the imaginative capacity, as will be mentioned in connection with the notion of the true reality of prophecy. It's not immediately clear how the Rambam infers this from the Medrash, but his argument is, is that angels have no physical form. And the Medrash seems to, seems to sort of imply this when it says, Shehem mitapchim, which means that they are constantly changing in their, in their image. And what that implies is, is that they don't really have any physical form unto themselves, because otherwise they would not be so given to change in their physical appearance, because just like normal physical bodies don't spontaneously change all the time, so too presumably the entity that is being described is only an image that is formed in the mind. And sometimes the mind will conjure an image of an angel looking one way, 
sometimes the mind will conjure uh, an image of the angel looking another way, and this is all the result of prophecy. Now we need to point out at the outset that what the Rambam is, uh, is uh, essentially suggesting is that any time we find reference to angels throughout Tanakh, they are only envisioned through prophecy, which means that an angel will never be standing in front of me in the physical world being someone that I can touch and feel and shake hands with and have any kind of physical interchange with that individual entity because angels are completely disembodied and it is only my imagination that conjures up some kind of physical form for them through the act of prophecy. Now if this is the case, and the Rambam is going to say this even more explicitly when we get to the second section of Moren Evuchim, the difficulty with this idea is that there are a number of stories that we find in the Chumash and in Tanakh that the Rambam acknowledges are encounters with angels and they seem to be occurring on the physical plane of our existence and yet the Rambam says that they only took place in the mind as a dream or a prophecy. Now think about it for a second, the story of the three angels coming to visit Avraham Avinu after he has his Brit Milah at the beginning of Parshat Vayera in the book of Genesis. Um, the Torah describes the three men coming to him and then later on it describes them as Malachim, which we normally translate as angels. The Rambam acknowledges that these were angelic beings, that these were not normal men. But the Rambam says that the entire interplay, the entire interchange between Avraham and the angels was purely in a prophetic dreamlike state, which means that when Avraham goes over to his guests and offers them food to eat, and they sit beneath the tree, and Avraham tells the lad to go and slaughter an animal, and he puts food before them, and they eat the food, and they they and all of these physical interactions that seem to be playing out in the story, according to the Rambam, did not actually happen. They didn't happen in a, on a physical plane. They happened in a dreamlike prophetic state. The Ramban takes issue, and I have copied for you in the handout for today, the Ramban at the beginning of Genesis chapter 18, Parshat Vayera, where he discusses this whole idea that he cannot accept the Ramban's interpretation that every single episode that involves physical interchange in the text really took place in a dreamlike state. We're going to defer that discussion for today for time reasons and also because this is not really the main place for us to, to be having this discussion. We'll defer that until we get to the second section where the Rambam states this more explicitly. As for their dictum sometimes into women, which implies that the prophets likewise sometimes see the angels in the vision of the prophecy in the form of women, it refers to the dictum of Zechariah, peace be on him, and behold, there came forth two women, and the wind was in their wings, and so on. So the Rambam points out to us that it is extremely rare in Tanakh for an angel to assume a female form. It really only appears once in all of Tanakh in the prophecy of Zechariah. And as the Radak points out, um, um, he says, the, the Radak, if you see, look at source number three, what the Rambam is quoting is a, is a Zechariah chapter 5, and there are actually three women that he has a vision of in his dream. He has a vision of the first woman, and then he has a vision of two other women. 
the Radak explains there's different ways to interpret the vision of these women that he's having. The first woman, according to the Radak, represents the ten tribes who were sent into exile, and the other two women represent the two remaining tribes of Judah and Benjamin, who also are going to be taken into captivity and to be punished because of the fact that they did not come enthusiastically back to build the second temple. Zechariah is at the end of the period of prophecy that lives into the second temple period. And as the Radak says, um, He says that Zechariah had unusual images or, or visions of angelic beings that did not assume the normative form of a male human being because... Uh, he lived at the end of prophecy, where prophecy was waning, the power of prophecy was weakening, and this is represented in the fact that he had visions of angelic beings in the form of horses and in the form of women. So I'm not going to get into a whole discussion of the weakened state of the human being being the feminine form. We don't want to go there right now, but I just wanted to point out that that seems to be the unique place in all of Tanakh where uh, and angels assume the form of women. Now, you already know that it is very difficult for man to apprehend, except after strenuous training, that which is pure and absolutely devoid of corporeality. And here the Rambam is going to get into a discussion that he, we started uh, in, in chapter 48 last week, which is the deficiency that, of man's mind in that he has an imagination faculty. It would be much better, according to the Rambam, as we discussed last week, which this was the a medieval approach that goes back to Plato, that it would be better for man if he did not have an imagination to help him conjure spiritual ideas. Purely ideas of the intellect that are devoid of physicality should really not be in any way distorted by superimposing physical images upon them. But our Im imagination faculty does that very thing. And the Rambam divides between the faculty of the intellect versus the faculty of the, uh, of the imagination. It is particularly difficult for one who does not differentiate between that which is cognized by the intellect and that which is imagined and who tends mostly towards imaginative apprehension alone. For such a one, everything that is imagined exists or can exist, whereas that which does not enter within the net of imagination is, in his opinion, non-existent and incapable of existing. People who only use their imagination to conjure up images of reality are sort of constrained by living in a physically depicted reality, when in, when in truth, reality transcends the physical images of the imagination, and really, if one were to use their, fa their faculty of intellect purely, they would have a more accurate depiction of, of reality, because reality transcends the physical. Accordingly to individuals of this kind, and they form the majority of those engaged in speculation, the true reality of a notion never becomes known, nor does a difficulty ever become clear to them. Because of the difficulty of this, the books of the prophets likewise contain dicta whose external sense can be understood as signifying that the angels are corporeal, that they move, that they are in the form of men, that they are given orders by God, and that they carry out his orders, and do what he wishes in virtue of his orders. All this is said so as to guide the minds to a knowledge of their existence and of their being alive and perfect, as we have explained with regard to God. 
And so, uh, so sort of sort of to round off his discussion of uh, uh, depictions in Tanakh which imply corporeality, I've gone through a, a very lengthy discussion, says the Rambam, of explaining to you how sometimes God is depicted as moving or as being alive or as having uh, some kind of um, uh, uh, anthropomorphic form, when in reality these are all metaphorical to help people who do not have pure intellect or are not guided by their pure intellect to be able to uh, give substance in their minds to God to make sure that we affirm his reality. The same thing is done by, uh, by the prophets in depicting the angels. The angels have no physical form, but because uh, they are not capable of, of creating an image in their minds of an angel without physical form, that is the reason why in their prophetic state they will see in the, the image of an angel assuming some kind of physical form, and as the Rambam will explain, it's almost always in the form of a human being. Now, here is where the Rambam is going to um, is going to differentiate between the images of angels and the image of God that is portrayed by the prophets. However, if one would stop at this imagining with regard to the angels, their true reality in essence would be like the essence of God as it is conceived in the imagination of the multitude. For about God, too, statements are made from whose external sense it appears that he is a living, mobile body, having the form of a man. So, up until now, based on what we've said, that there needs to be some accommodation of human imagination, both God and angels seem to be depicted in, as having some kind of uh, physical form in the form of a human being. Of course, it's all allegorical, but yet there seems to be no difference up until this point. Therefore, the mind is guided toward a knowledge of the fact that the rank of the existence of the angels is below the rank of the deity through the admixture with their shape of something belonging to the shape of irrational animals, so that what is understood with regard to the existence of the Creator should be more perfect than what is understood with regard to their existence, just as man is more perfect than the irrational animals. So what essentially he has said in this very long sentence is that in order to differentiate between God's perfection and God's non-corporeality and the angels' perfection and their non-corporeality, because angels, after all, are a creation of God and are not God himself, therefore the prophets do differentiate in the physical imaginative form that are granted or imbued to angels versus that which is imbued to God. God is imbued purely at times with terms that imply some kind of anthropomorphic human form to God. However, angels not only receive that anthropomorphic attribution of looking like human beings, but they also have something added to their image that is animal-like as well. And as we're going to see, he's referring to the wings of an angel. Only animals have wings. Human beings don't have wings. So God in his wisdom granted prophetic knowledge of angels as having wings so as to differentiate them from God. God is, is, is completely human-like in any kind of prophetic image, but angels are human-like with some appendage that makes them akin to animals as well, and that is their wings. And that is done deliberately to differentiate angels from God. However, an animal shape is attributed to them by attribution of wings only and in no other way. Um, uh, so, and as we'll see, the face of angels is always the same as human beings, 
but the only thing that's added on to them that is animal-like is their wings. For flying cannot be represented to oneself without wings, just as walking cannot be represented to oneself without legs. For the existence of these faculties cannot possibly be represented to oneself, except in so far as they subsist in these appendages. That's the way we're going to translate it. These organs of transport. So therefore, in order to describe the angels as being quick to move from one place to another, they are given the attribution of having wings. Now, when we talk about God moving, we never say that God flies with wings. We, we're, and the Rambam will get to that in just a minute. The motion of flying has been chosen in order to point to the angels being living beings, for it is the most perfect and the noblest of the motions of the uh, irrational animals, or the non-intellectual non animals, and man believes it to be a great perfection, so that he even wishes to fly, in order that it might be easy for him to flee from all that harms him, and that he might take himself swiftly to whatever agrees with him, even if it be far off. In other words, we fantasize about flying. So halavai, human beings had wings. So when we think about something that is desirable and laudable within the animal kingdom, we look at an animal's wings, we look at a bird's wings and say, oh, if only I had wings. So therefore, even though they're associated with animals, still it's the loftiest and most laudable component of the animal, and that is what is attached to the angels. Accordingly, this motion is ascribed to the angels. Moreover, and additionally to the fact that it is the most laudable component of, uh, of an animal, a bird appears and is hidden, approaches and moves far away in very quick time. And all these are characteristics that, as shall be explained, and again, we're going to get into this in the second section of Morena Buchim, it behooves us to believe that the angels possess, that the angels come very rapidly and very instantaneously come onto a scene and leave a scene uh, in someone's life. And as a result, wings are the most appropriate appendage to depict that kind of very quick entrance and quick exit. However, that which is deemed to be perfection, I mean the motion of flying, is not in any way ascribed to God. You will never find God being described as flying or having wings, because it is a motion pertaining to an animal not endowed with reason. Rambam's thesis for this is, is that to say that God flies is to, in some way, create some kind of commonality between God and animals. And that is too uh, insulting to God. And that is why scripture will never describe God as flying and certainly not describe God with wings. For you should not make a mistake with regard to the dictum and he, ro he rode upon a cherub and did fly, for, it, for, in the cherub that, for it is in the cherub that did fly. Sometimes you'll find a scripture such as um, uh, in Psalms chapter 18, Vayirkav al-Kiruv Vayaof, that God rides on a cherub, an angel, and, and that angel flies. So you can, you can describe God as piggybacking on top of an angel and flying, but it's not God himself who is flying. And this parable is merely intended to indicate the swiftness of the coming to pass over the matter. Similarly, scripture says, Behold, the, the Lord rides upon a swift cloud and comes into Egypt. A, chap, a, a verse in Isaiah, chapter 19, that it talks about God is rocheval avkal ubamitzrayim, that God rides on a light cloud, a very swift cloud, and comes down to bring retribution to Egypt, which refers to the swiftness of the descent upon them of the calamity referred to in the context of Isaiah, chapter 19. 
So again, scripture is very careful in the prophetic image that is being communicated to remove flight directly from God, but that God gets onto a cloud or he gets onto an angel, and that's how he flies. Again, to remove any kind of common link between God and anything in the animal kingdom. Nor should you be led into error by what you find especially in Ezekiel with regard to the face of an ox and the face of a lion and the face of an eagle and the sole of the foot of a calf. And here we get into a very esoteric discussion, uh, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on today, once again, because the Rambam is going to extensively discuss Ma'asei Merkava, the act of the chariot, which from the first chapter of Ezekiel, <coughs> excuse me, at the beginning of section 3 of Moren Nebuchim. So we're only going to touch very briefly upon it, but what scripture is describing is a vision that Ezekiel has of what is known as the Merkava, known as the chariot of God. And on that chariot, there are four facets or four uh, sides to the chariot, and one uh, on each four sides, there is a different face of some angelic being. One has the face of an ox, one has the face of a lion, one has the face of an eagle, and, and the sole of the foot of a calf. And only the, the fourth one has the face of a human. And what's puzzling about that is the Rambam just got through telling us that because angels are a, per, are a perfect creation of God, Scripture will only uh, assign them a similarity to animals by giving them wings, but not giving them any other animal features. And yet, over here in the vision of Ezekiel, the, angel, the angelic beings that are embedded in God's chariot are given animal faces, not just animal wings. This seems to upend the argument of the Rambam that he had mentioned before. So, to answer this question, he says, this has another interpretation which you will hear. He says um, uh, that... I'm going to give you a full explanation of this when we come to it in section 3, uh, chapter 1. Just to give you a little bit of an appetizer of what the Rambam says over there, he points out that Scripture is describing the faces of the angels, which all have human faces, but sometimes have an appearance that, are, that is animal-like, but not completely looking like an animal. In other words, the Rambam says, when we get to there, you can, we, we can have a further discussion. But the Rambam says, there are, you look at sometimes a person's face, and you notice that that person's face looks a little bit like an animal. Some people look a little bit like a bear. Some people look a little bit like a monkey. Some people look a little bit uh, like a bird, like a bird having a bird's face, or a dog face, or a cat face. So when Scripture says that these four faces, one had the face of an ox, one had the face of a lion, it doesn't mean like we imagine, like a, a real lion head, but rather it means a human face, but the human face had certain features to that human face that, that were lion-like. And that's the way the Rambam understands it. That's one explanation of how I can get out of this contradiction to my thesis. But I'll give you a second explanation, and that is, it is also merely a description of the animals. These intentions will be explained by means of hints sufficient to awaken the attention. Now here, what I need to explain is, and this again, we're only just going to touch upon this today, this is not the main discussion for today. 
when he says it is also merely a description of the animals, he means what in Hebrew is the word chayot. And the word chayot, according to the Rambam, can have multiple meanings. The word chayot, when it's used in, in context of describing different classes of angels, we talk about the chayot hadesh. And the Rambam in Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, which I have copied for you in source number nine, tells us that, um, that there are different classifications of angels. You have the chayot, and you have the ofanim, and you have the, um, well, you, you, you have multiple levels of different kinds of angels. Uh, you have the seraphim, and, uh, and the, right, so there's multiple different, different names, and they occupy different stations on a heavenly plane. But there's also a term that the Rambam discusses called galgalim. Now the galgalim is are not angels. Galgalim are the what we would call in English the celestial spheres, which is a Neoplatonic concept of their, this planet being surrounded by concentric, transparent spheres. When we studied the introduction to the Rambam, we touched upon this uh, uh, slightly, but the idea is that the, the, the world is constructed in such a way where there are certain barriers between our physical reality and God himself. Those barriers that sort of um, create cushions or buffers between the completely physical world, which is completely the antithesis of God and God himself, are these celestial spheres which each one is endowed with an intelligence. Each one of these celestial spheres is not an angel per se, because an angel is completely devoid of any physicality. But these celestial spheres do possess some kind of physical attributes. And the Rambam contends, at least in this explanation, that what Ezekiel was having a vision of when he looked at the divine chariot in Ezekiel chapter 1 was not specifically of angels, but rather was of galgalim which the Rambam also says can be called chayot in a totally different context. Not the chayot HaKodesh of the angelic category, but the chayot of the galgalim, of these celestial spheres. And that explains why the, uh, the image that is portrayed in Ezekiel's mind is animal-like, because the celestial spheres do have some level of corporeality, not the same level of corporeality that we find in our world, but they're also not completely disembodied and divested of physicality. And as such, the image that Ezekiel has of them is more animal-like in their features, and that would explain why uh, they don't have completely human form like the regular depiction that the Rambam has given to us. Now, the Rambam hasn't really explained to us why he is so insistent that angels must have physical form and faces and, phys and human faces and, and so forth. He hasn't really explained to us why that he's so uh, hung up on that idea that angels must have human faces. But it seems clear that because he believes that angels are the most perfect or disembodied kind of creation, the most non-corporeal creation of God, if they are going to assume any physical form in our imaginations, they must assume the highest level of physical form, which is the human being, right? And therefore, he has to go through all of these uh, explanations to explain any time we do encounter 
a prophetic, a prophetic vision where the vision of the angel is not in the form of a human being, but rather in the form of an animal. And either it's because we're not understanding the verse, because when it says an animal, it really means a human being that has some kind of animalistic features, or it's not really a, an image of an angel, but rather of something that is lower than an angel. That's just what uh, the Rambam is saying over here. Let's finish this chapter, and we're going to see that we're going to get into a discussion of angels later on. As for the motion of flying, it occurs in the texts in every passage, and it cannot be represented to oneself without a wing. Accordingly, it was supposed that the angels had wings in order that guidance be given concerning the state of their existence, but not with a view to obtaining knowledge of their true reality of their essence, because, of course, purely non-physical beings have no wings, okay? Know that everyone who accomplishes a very swift movement is described as flying so as to indicate the swiftness of the movement. Thus, Scripture says, as the eagle swoops down, this is in reference to um, God swooping down. That God will cause an enemy nation to swoop down upon you, right? And, and basically it's describing not actual physical movement, but it's a metaphor. For the eagle is swifter in his flight and swoop than any other bird. For this reason it is used in the parable. Know also, and this is what we'll conclude with, that the wings are the causes of flying. The angels fly with their wings, and that's why they have wings. For this reason, the number of wings seen in the prophetic vision corresponded to that of the causes of motion of a moving thing. Um, and the, uh, the Pines edition is somewhat misleading. The commentaries say, as and Rav Kathach makes a point of saying this, that angels are described certainly in certain prophetic visions as having four wings. And we'll talk about the six-winged angels of Isaiah later on, but at least the four wings that are described in certain passages of Tanakh is the fact because the number four is particularly important in the sense that there are four causes of motion. And because of that, angels are ascribed with four wings as a metaphor to imply that they are responsible for four different kinds of movement or phenomena or change within the world. When God wishes to affect change, he will sometimes uh, do it via an angel, an intellectual being that we call an angel. And because angels are responsible for four different kinds of changes that are embedded with philosophical terminology, the angels are ascribed with having four wings. Again, purely metaphorical. However, he says this is not the subject of the chapter, and I don't want us to go too much beyond this discussion for now today, because um, really this was this, a discussion of the non-corporeal nature of angels and all of the other discussions of angelology that we need to embark upon will be done at a later point in the Moreh Nebuchim. We'll hold it here for today, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Take care now.